Hey, thank you. You look great today, everybody. I want to go talk to somebody right now, if you don't mind. You can, li- you can listen in. Um, uh, I watched you a while ago, just as Jim Meisner, by the way. I watched, him, I watched you singing about the goodness of God you with your hands raised. I watched you singing oh. about the goodness of God. You were singing every word and uh, to every song. And you had your hands raised up. You had a birthday last Monday. How old were you? 96. 96, wow. Now, I have to preach, so you've got, I can only give you like 30 seconds. So, why are you still celebrating the goodness of God after all these years? Because of who He is. Give me 30 more seconds on that. Pardon? Who is he? He is God. He said, I am God. Beside me, there is no other. That's good, huh? (laughs) Happy birthday, Jim. Jim is a dear man uh, who's, uh, through the years, has always, uh, I don't know if this makes any sense to you if you're not a church person, but this is church language, prophetic word. He, he always has a prophetic word for me. He's always telling me what God has told him. And it's always absolutely on target every time. You've been doing that for 20 years or so here. And uh, wonderful. We love you, Jim. So I want to I read a, a scripture. It's not going to be on the screen. And I just failed to put it on there. But um, then I'll explain. David, Shepherd David, has been secretly anointed king over his brothers. And his brothers know it. So that's kind of an important piece of the story. He's been secretly anointed king, but returned to his job as shepherd. So he's patiently being a shepherd of sheep, doing everything a shepherd does, taking care all alone out there, playing his harp, defeating those adversaries like we'll see later, the lion and the bear who attack his sheep. And his brothers are on the front line of battle at a place called the Valley of Elah. And there they're being threatened by a giant named Goliath. Every, almost everyone knows something about the story of David and Goliath. And you've, heard the, uh, you've heard it as a metaphor anyway. And this guy was like 11 foot tall. He's a part of the Philistines who are always enemies of Israel, always trying to conquer Israel. And every day he's coming out and he's challenging, he's challenging Israel. And he's challenging a man to come out and fight with him. And so David's father sends David down to check on his brothers and take some food to them. And um, David gets down there and it's shocking to him that everybody's afraid of this giant. And he starts asking all kinds of questions. He starts being inquisitive. What's going on? And he, he hears um, the person who kills this giant will never have to pay taxes again in Israel. Now, how many of you would be interested in an assignment that would do that for you? And he will get the king's daughter. And David did not do what a lot of people think that if a person's godly, they're not interested in those two things in life. <laughs> but that's, 
I, I just, this is, this is just an aside. This is not the sermon, but being a Christian and following God will make you more human, not less. So I, you should relate. You'll still be interested in money and intimate relationships. You might even be more interested in some ways. All right? So David's saying this, and, and, and so good. Well, I, I kind of blew past the point. The point was when David heard it, he didn't go, Oh, I don't care about those things. He said, What? What will be done for the man who kills God? <laughs> the incentive was there. See, that's another thing about God to me. I think, I, I believe the incentives for being a Christian, the incentives for loving God are huge. And I think it's the, better, uh, it's, it's the best way to go, right? So here's what, I want to pick up the narrative in chapter 17, verse 26. But when David's oldest brothers, Eli, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. You ever have anybody tell you who you are? I know you, you're, you're a this, you're a that. <laughs> you belong to that group, you know. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over. He just, he walked away from him, which is what you should do when people get in that, you're this, you're that. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine impossibly when you're only a boy and you've been a, he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. The animal turns on me, I catch it with a jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine where he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, this is very important, circle this, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead and may the Lord be with you. So, Chapter 17. whoa, it wants to read, my phone wants to read it again. <laughs> um, I battle, I have battled huge insecurity throughout my life, and um, it still pops up uh, kind of semi-regularly, and uh, I remember I, I was in Israel when I was, I think I was 20 or 21, and I was there with a group of people, and we're doing all the sites and everything, and um, kind of a, a ritual, if you go to Israel, you get baptized in Jordan River, so... Uh, that's what was happening. We were all getting baptized in Jordan River. And this guy who barely knew me, I, I didn't know him very well. I'd seen him in some meetings we'd been in in Virginia. And uh, he comes over to me right before I'm going to go down to the water, and he says, Phil, uh, you are going to bury your insecurity in the water today. And, uh, and I thought that sounded pretty good. I didn't have really an understanding that I was insecure. You know, I, I didn't really understand... But I, if you had grilled me, I would have known that I was always worried about what other people thought. I didn't have very much confidence. I had this very narrow area where I was confident and not overall. And uh, I, I, I would have to say that his, his prediction didn't really work 
<laughs> he got his discernment was right, but uh, I did not get free from insecurity. But I've always thought about that moment throughout my life. And uh, I remember one time Sherry and I were singing at this large church, and, and I believe if I remember right, I preached that night. And uh, I would have been early, I would have been maybe 25 then, 24. Um, maybe, maybe it was a little later. And anyway, it doesn't, it's irrelevant. Um, but I remember I was singing this song. We were singing this song that, that, that I wrote called um, He Didn't Wait Till the Sweet By and By to Send His Power from Behind. It's kind of a rock, it rocks back and forth, you know. It's kind of, it's a high, high tempo song. And, and the, the congregation really got into it. And they were really swaying back and forth with us. And I remember standing there, and instead of feeling good, I felt frightened. I felt panicky. I felt I wanted to run away. Now, you would think, well, you wrote a song, you're singing it, and the people are liking it. You feel good about it. But I didn't feel good about it. I felt I wished I could crawl under the, under the platform. I didn't... I didn't Psychologically, I did not understand that two years later I read about what they call imposter syndrome, where you, you find yourself in a place of success, but you feel like, I don't belong here. I'm not good enough for this. I don't belong here. I'm, I'm... And, and I believe God creates us with these personalities, by the way. You know, some people come out of the womb just so confident. They're, they're lecturing the doctor on how he could have done it better when they come out of the womb, you know. And then there are people like me who, who first response is to be deferential. That's just the first response. One is not superior to the other. God, if, if either drive gets sanctified, God uses it. It's not a matter of... So today's sermon is about self-acceptance. So it's not a matter of reformatting your personality. Don't even try. You don't have to try. Your friends and neighbors and family will try. <laughs> but they will fail. Because God has designed you. And God has designed you in the way he's designed you because he has a special purpose for your life. And I, now, now it, in my older age, I'm discovering that part of me and I've learned to appreciate it. I've learned that... When I'm sitting and someone's in my office and they're sharing their troubles and they're talking about their situation, when I get in that environment, I'm really a good listener. And someone doesn't need someone to be super assertive in that moment. But there are situations where being assertive is needed. So it's not a matter of one is good or the other. Does anybody relate to what I'm saying? Does anybody relate to insecurity? Am I the only one? So let's turn to the book, which is the Bible, and let's talk about biblical, gospel-centered self-acceptance. Biblical self-acceptance is crucial, I believe, for every successful endeavor because it enables us to be confident to stand apart from others. We need to work with others, but we also have to be able to stand apart from others while fulfilling God's purpose in our different context. There's no record 
otherwise, I cannot think of a single great endeavor in the secular realm or the religious realm that didn't require enough self-assurance to resist the opinions of the majority at, some, at the early stages of the development of that thing, whether it's technological or philosophical or regardless of what it was. It required somebody who was, who was able to get secure enough in what they were feeling and hearing that they were able to stand alone. Now that doesn't mean that people haven't stood alone with ideas that were bad or wrong or, 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 or terrible even. Karl Marx was alone. Karl Marx only had 50 people come to his funeral. But his philosophy is spread like wildfire. So, just because you're alone doesn't mean that you have a great idea. But it doesn't mean you don't either. <laughs> right? So I've just given you the example of David and his brothers, David and Saul. But what about the divine David? Jesus is the divine David. They, were even, they even came from the same place. David came from Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They even came from the same place. And people didn't like them. Think about it. The Bible says Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. Jesus did not get peer approval. Jesus, the creator of the world, didn't get a peer approval. In fact, they called him names like blasphemer, glutton, wine-bibber. They even called him Beelzebub. That's another word for Satan. But you know who didn't reject Jesus? Jesus didn't reject Jesus. In fact, in the book of John, there are seven self-assertions that Jesus gave in spite of the people, in spite of the fact that people were saying, he's a drunkard, he's a glutton, he's a wine-bibber, he's actually Satan personified. <laughs> the seven assertions are I'm the bread of life I'm the light of the world I'm the door of the sheep I'm the good shepherd I'm the resurrection and the life I'm the way, the truth, the life Jesus said I don't really care what you say I am I know what I am I know who I am how many of us can enter into that place where we actually know who we are Regardless of what someone else says. Now that doesn't mean you don't receive correction. That doesn't mean you, 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 you push back on all your critics. That doesn't mean that you never are able to hear that you're wrong. Not, not at all. First of all, you ain't Jesus. We'll start with that. <laughs> and secondly, the attitude of Jesus was not that you could not. He was not unapproachable. It's just Jesus knew when you were getting him wrong. And you got to know when people around you are getting you wrong and stand, having done all to stand. Biblical self-acceptance is recognizing God's purpose designed for us, our equipped gifts and abilities, and includes honestly assessing weaknesses, acknowledging sin, and placing unwavering trust in God's faithfulness to overcome all life challenges. N note, I will use the term... Biblical self-acceptance 
this morning because as Annie Crawford talked about yesterday in our Parenting in the Apocalypse forum, society has moved from what, um, what sociologists call postmodernism. Was postmodernism, one of the tenets of postmodernism was your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. You do you and I'll do me. That's postmodernism. There, there's no truth whatsoever. All truth is a social construct used by, used by those who want to oppress you, to oppress you. Well, that can't last. After a while, when you're saying there is no absolute truth, and you're saying your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and you, you do you and me do me, after a, while we, after a while, nothing means anything anymore. That's what Annie talked about yesterday. After a while, there's, nothing has meaning. And, and we can't handle that. And so now we're moving, and we, we can't figure out what to call it. Now we're going post-postmodernism. <laughs> Which is now, what are you seeing? You're seeing a religious-like dogmas coming up that are absolutely saying, yeah, here, here is the way. Just like, just like Christianity says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. We're having those rise up now saying, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Just like Christianity says, the Bible has this verse, this is the way, walk you in it. Now we're having a rise from secularism in those who do not believe in God even, rising up and saying, this is the way, walk you in it. So, that's why I want to use the term biblical self-acceptance because there is a, a non-biblical self-acceptance that is false, misleading, perhaps even dangerous. So, uh, I don't want to be fired for, being a play, for plagiarism. I'd rather be fired for something more noble than that. So, so I, I, will, I, will, I will tell you a secret. Uh, I went in Tuesday morning very early, you know, quite early, 6.30 or so, and because uh, I wanted, I knew what my week was going to be like. I knew about the forum that was coming. I knew I had a wedding on Saturday, and there were other things going on with other meetings. I knew, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be on, I'm going to wake up Saturday morning, have no time, and this message is not going to be finished. So I, I worked for, I worked all the way to 1, 1 p.m. from that time, and I was like lost in my first point. I had one point, but it was like 25 minutes long. And I'm like panicking. So I called, uh, I called for help. I, I, I texted Jay, said, come into my office. I need to talk to you. So I hand my computer to Jay, I said, read my sermon. I said, it's just, I, I am stuck on one point. I'm going to be preached for two hours if, if I don't. So Jay read it over, and he goes like this. He goes, hey, here's what you're trying to say. You, you, as you know, Jay is very subtle, and uh, <laughs> you just have to drag opinions out of him, man. It's just so hard. My whole family's like that. They, they're just, they're just, you just kind of never know what they're thinking, you know, until you just beg. <laughs> and so I, Jay reads it over, he goes, Here's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say God is good, people are good, and sin is bad. 
I said, you got it. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak it. The old, the old man has to be right about something. So he got one of them wrong, so I'm going to correct it in a minute. <laughs> so let's start. We're talking about biblical self-acceptance. How do we build biblical self-acceptance? Number one, we build it by knowing that God is good. Amen? Amen. Shepherd David's self-acceptance wasn't... It, it, that's why I wanted you to see in those verses how he, he connects everything with God. He connects everything with the power of God, the goodness of God, that God, he, he called, he, 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 called he, he referred to Israel as the armies of the living God. What's he, what's he telling these people? He's telling them, you belong to God. God loves you. God chose you. You're chosen by God. You're created by God. What do you mean talking about being defeated? What are you talking about not succeeding? What are you talking about not being blessed? What are you talking about thinking some big hairy guy who's only a, a, a pagan who doesn't belong to God can ever defeat you? David finished this lion and bear killing story. I read it a minute ago. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. He didn't say. See, his self-acceptance wasn't about... He wasn't central to his self-acceptance. He wasn't central. He was peripheral. We'll see that in a minute. He was, he was peripheral to his self-acceptance. It was grounded in something more stable than him. You know? Uh, you, you see, when I got nervous that people were liking my song or acting like they were like it. When I got nervous, it was because I wasn't grounded in God. I was grounded in me. I was thinking about, I was being self-conscious. I wasn't being God-conscious. I wasn't thinking about what God was doing in that moment. I was thinking about what I was doing in that moment. My self-acceptance, I was trying to find self-acceptance by myself, and I didn't realize it. I didn't realize, I, would, I never could realize it, but it was what was happening. Furthermore, David's case for Israel is that they are the arms of the living God, I said a minute ago. When our identity and our self-worth is self-reliant, we tend to become arrogant, competitive. <laughs> Say, what if, I, what if I was standing up and people were responding well to me, and I thought, boy, I guess I haven't, I guess I'm good. I guess I'm as amazing as my mother said I was. <laughs> it's not just spiritual talk or Christian linguistics when we say all the glory goes to God. Now it may be for some of you. It may just be spiritual talk and you may not really mean it. But don't assume that. When we say all the glory goes to God, as, as we, were, we were having dinner with Annie uh, Crawford last night, and she was just gushing over what she saw at the Blessing Barn and the bookstore and all that God is doing. And, and you don't think about it sometimes. When you're in the middle of it, you're not thinking. You're, you're just, you, you, for one thing, you're working hard. And those of you that are in this room and you have, you're doing important jobs, you know what I mean. <laughs> You're not even thinking about how good it is sometimes. You're not even thinking about, you're, you're, you're trying, sometimes you're trying to survive. <laughs> you're trying to survive and get, make it through the week. And, but when someone comes from the outside, they go, wow, 
So she said, in fact, I'll tell you, don't tell you. We're not on live stream, so I can tell you. She said, you, you, you know, uh, what, what's the couple that has the show and they have Magnolia in Waco, Texas? Yeah, she said, this is better than Magnolia. Because <laughs> her daughter goes to Baylor. <laughs> yeah, but that's just between us, right? She said her daughter goes to Baylor University, so she's always in, in Waco. She lives in Austin, Texas. And, uh, and I, I said, well, wait a minute. I said, I, I, yes, yes, we have people that... Sherry's amazing. She's, she's an incredible leader. And, and you give her all the credit in the world. And, and a whole staff that's just... just I mean, yesterday, I, I don't know, a business has really, really increased since we were on Good Morning America on last Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning, whenever that aired. I mean, the place was jammed yesterday with people coming from everywhere. And we're, we're just, you know, I, I said, you know, none of this, 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 at the foundation of the blessing barn is an act of God. Yeah. I mean, I'm serious. We get a call from a realtor who says, I think you guys should have it. And uh, somebody else, I won't mention name, who has a lot more money than any of us in this room probably, was trying to buy it. And uh, it had been on the market. I think it had been on the market for, I don't remember. Sherry will correct me later, but I think it was a million and a half or two million. I don't remember. And uh, the owner wanted us to have it. And gave it we got it for $700,000. Eight and a half acres, about 35,000 square feet of building with a house that's got three apartments in it. That just doesn't happen, friend. That is God blessing our lives with a gift. Amen? So when our identity and our self-worth are arbitrary, here's another problem. When our identity and self-worth are arbitrary, they have no grounding. And they have no grounding. They will either attract, we'll either attract ourselves to a false source of value or we'll be subjected to constantly changing whims the whims, with the whims of our environment telling us wh- wh- why we should feel good about ourselves or what our identity should be in. When it's God, when it's a good God, though, we have stability. We're not like always casting about for, oh, I would be valuable if I belonged to this group or that group. If I did this. No, it's, it's constant. Oh, the Father of lights, James calls it, in whom there's no variableness. No variableness. The problem with secular world, and I'm not, we're not down, if you're here for the first time, we're not down on the secular world all the time. We, we appreciate the world. The world often gets it right. All that stuff. We're, we're, not, we're not haters of the world. We're not a little group of people huddling, waiting on Jesus to come back, you know? <laughs> well, that's not who we are at all. You know, we actually do human things. We go out to eat, we play golf, we go to vacation and do everything like that. So we enjoy the world that we live in. But a problem with the world, if you, if you, put your, if you make them the basis of your, of your self-identity, think about this. We've gone from modernism, and just about the time we got modernism figured out, they changed it to postmodernism. And just about the time that I really understood postmodernism, they've gone to post-postmodernism. So I think it would be very wise to find a stable foundation for your faith and your identity 
and who you are. That's what Jesus did. You know who, you know who told Jesus he was the light of the world? The Father told him that. Because he said, I don't do anything except what the Father says. You know who told him he was the bread of life? The Father told him that. You know who told him he was the way, the truth, the life? The Father told him that. You know who told him that he was the bread of life? You know, you know who told him all those self-assertions? The Father. So nobody could make him doubt what the Father said. And guess what? All those movements, they will all pass away. But the story of Jesus and the story of the gospel will never, ever pass away. It will reemerge, and it has reemerged for 2,000 years since Jesus came. Society goes like this spiritually. We go up toward God, then we, then we go down, and we hit the bottom. We don't believe in God anymore. And then, you know what the next thing we do after that? We go back. Oh, there must be a God, because this isn't working. <laughs> and we get it, like, boom. If you do a graph, we had a lady teaching back here who did it one day. You do a graph, history looks like this. History looks like this. Every time we, every time we say, there's no God, we go, ooh. There might, if, there, well, here's what we do. We go, we don't make nice. It's articulate this way. They say, well, I don't believe in God anymore, but I sure believe in the devil. Because <laughs> the demons have showed up. <laughs> the demons have manifest, right? See what great love. Let's, verse John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. I like what um, Henry Nouwen said. He was a great uh, Catholic scholar. When we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones, we see, see, what, I, what I want to say with this quote is when we have this true source of identity in, in being made in the image of God, we don't keep it to ourselves. When, when, when you are the source of your identity or something else, then you think, I've arrived. I'm a part of the elite. I'm a part of the credential class now. Maybe, you're, maybe you went to Yale and your father went to Yale and your grandfather went to Yale and you think, huh, I'm sorry to tell you, but I just, I just know more than everyone else. <laughs> I, you, know, you know what you are? You're like the guy said today, you're born on third base and you think you hit a triple. You know <laughs> No, but when, when your identity is in God, you know that, you know that self-worth is not just for you, it's for everybody. Everybody you know, right? Yeah, you give the Lord a hand on that. Your self-worth is not just for you, because you know everybody has the potential of discovering that for their self-worth, and you want to tell them. You want to tell them the good news. That God loves you. That's what you mean when you say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what you mean. You mean that you've discovered the true foundation of self-worth. You've found the true foundation of self-esteem. You've found the true foundation and you know everybody could have it. Henry Nowen said it this way. When we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones, we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire to reveal to others their, their own chosenness. 
Instead of making us feel that we are better, more precious, or valuable than others, our awareness of being chosen opens our eyes to the chosenness of others. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit for the sake of time. I want to jump to, Jason said you are good. I don't think that's the right way to say it. I think you are sacred. That's what I think is the right way to say that. Again, I'll quote Henry Nowen, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us to be beloved. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? 1 John 3.1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions, that you may be declared the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, now this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that your discipline and skills and talents don't matter. This doesn't mean that at all. David goes down there to the Valley of Elah to, take, to check on his brothers. And he ends up hitting the giant in the forehead with a stone from a slingshot. Let me tell you something. That wasn't the first time David ever saw a slingshot. David had become proficient and skilled at the slingshot, not through a spiritual miracle, not through some supernatural thing that he became good at a slingshot. He had been practicing. He had disciplined himself to learn how to take care of a herd of sheep and develop the use of weapons that would give him the ability out there in the wilderness by himself to take care of his sheep and defend himself and them against predators. David had honed his skills. He was good at what he did. So self-acceptance does have a component of self-development. And so people who are not disciplined to develop their skills and master something, it's not always because they don't believe in God and they don't believe that God loves them. It's often because they are lazy. So don't be lazy, okay? Stop it. (laughs) Develop your talents. Develop your skills. Learn to do something well. I don't care care if you're 90 years old, 96 years old. Learn to do something well. Get better at something. Whatever you're doing, try to get better at it. The Bible says, there's a little verse, that says, labor that you may excel. You want to really have self-esteem? You want to really have self-esteem? It's when you know you're doing the best with what God gave you. That's self-esteem. It's like, like the guy with, you know, the, had the beautiful farm. I know I've told this about a hundred times. The guy had the beautiful farm, and a guy drives up and says, man, what a beautiful farm God gave you. He said, you should have seen it when God gave it to me. <laughs> so, let's talk about sin is bad. I expanded on that. Sin is bad. We are sinful, but Jesus saves. That's the gospel. That's what Andy talked about yesterday, how the gospel story. The gospel story, the reason, the reason when, when movies do not stick to the gospel narrative, they flop at the box office. 
When movies stay with a gospel narrative, which is creation of something, failure, the plot thickens, a savior emerges outside of the people who are trapped and saves them. That's the narrative of the gospel. And it's the narrative of every great story that's ever been told. And it's, if you will accept it, it's the narrative of your life. N.T. Wright has a lot of quotes on this. I'm going to give you four of them right quick. Sin is like a deadly virus that infects and distorts everything it touches, corrupting the divine image in humanity. Sin fractures our relationship with God and tarnishes the reflection of His glory within us, leading us to brokenness and alienation. Sin not only separates from God, but also mars our humanity, distorting the image uh, we were meant to bear. The Bible says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. James 3.2 says, we all stumble in many ways. So how can I feel good about myself? If I screw up a lot, if I mess up a lot, how can I feel good about myself? Well, some of us have difficulty with that, right? Uh, <laughs> I think that's what Dr. Carl Jung meant when he said, the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. <laughs> I think that's what he meant by that. That if you do not accept the fact, and, and that's where unbiblical self-acceptance does not include the fact that you are marred by sin. Now hang in with me. I'm going to explain at the end why it's important and why it doesn't mean you are not worthy of being accepted. And you should not accept yourself just because you have sin. The humanistic version of self-acceptance does indeed have its virtues, and it gets and it points it gets it right, by the way. But it can be very disarming to the child of God. Like gospel-centered self-acceptance teaches us that humans have intrinsic worth, but gospel self-acceptance also teaches that we are weak and and sinful. Now. Like I said, I'm not a complete critic of secular self-acceptance, but they have to show me that it can truly work without the power of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, the blood of Jesus to cleanse of sin, and the prescriptive impact of the Scripture to teach us a path away from our inborn tendency to sin, and a community of believers to help me with sin management. To complete this process of entering biblically-based, gospel-centered self-acceptance, I want to read the words. In fact, Jason shared this hymn to me. I don't know how he knows about a hymn that was written in the 1700s, but he knew about this hymn. And I, I actually had never read the lyrics before, but Jason said, Dad, have you heard the hymn? Have you heard the hymn, Come You Sinners? I said, no, I don't think I've heard that hymn. So here's the lyrics. Written in 17-something or other. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, really ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, you thirsty, come and welcome God's freely bounty glorify. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fondness fit, fitness finally dream. All the fitness he requireth is to fill your need of him. 
Come you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will save me from my sin. By the riches of his merit, there is joy and life in him. Speaking of hymns, there is that hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And there's that very disturbing line that, that modernists and postmodernists both had huge problems with. And I have a huge, I've had a huge problem with it too. Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. You know what the next line is? That saved a wretch like me. <laughs> How am I going to feel self-acceptance if John Newton said I was a wretch? I, don't have, I have no clue what a wretch is, but it sounds horrible. It's, <laughs> it sounds bad, doesn't it? I thought about that long and hard this week. Uh, saved a wretch like me. Self-acceptance saved a wretch. I'm a wretch. Like, that doesn't go together. And then it dawned on me, I live with a realtor. And so I have heard hundreds of times, maybe, I'm maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe a hundred times, right? I've heard this, this sentence, that house has good bones. Now, I know what that means. Well, it could mean a few things. It, 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 could, mean that, uh, it could mean that it's in some stage of disrepair. It could mean it's, it's, it, it could mean it's a, a, been neglected, or some uh, serious cosmetic disaster by a well-intentioned person who put a lot of energy but had bad taste. It could mean that. It could mean a bad floor plan that could be corrected. But it also means if it falls into the hands of one, someone who loves it, some of you have renovated houses. It falls in the hand of someone who loves it, someone who's competent, someone who has the tools, someone who has the help, someone who has the materials, someone who has the resources. If it falls into the right person, that house will be beautiful. We used to sing a song, He Made Something Beautiful of My Life. That's the gospel, friends. That's the gospel. You have good bones. Because you've been created in the image of God. Sin has marred you. Well-intentioned people who had poor taste have messed with your mind. But the one who created you and the one who loved you is asking you to return to him right now. And he's saying, I'd like to take you on as a project because you're going to be beautiful when I get done with you. You are, you are sacred. You are loved. You are marred by sin, but I didn't do it. And I would have never done that to you. I'm your friend, and I want to deliver you from that which reduces your divine potential. <laughs>